0: There was one who if we put our faith in, who we turn from our sin in ourself and we trust, God will forgive us of our sin. One who if we put our faith and our trust in, God will accept us based upon his obedient life and give us his spirit to live a life that's pleasing to God. And that's the good news this morning. That's the good news every morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ. No doubt, Corinth was a messy church. This new church had been started by the Apostle Paul on a second missionary journey. This this city was an important city uh, located in modern-day southern Greece on an isthmus there, strategically located. It was a trade city, and unfortunately, it was known for its immorality, for its rampant prostitution. And the fact that it had thousands of different philosophical and religious options that one could adhere to. Yet, Paul and his companions, by God's grace, came into this city and shared the gospel. And God touched hearts of particular Corinthians and birthed the church. And after he left the city and his new church, he writes them this letter addressing key issues that had emerged in this new faith community. I have a little bit of an outline here of what these issues included. The the problem of factions, chapter 1 through 4. The problem of immorality, chapter 5 through 6. The problem of marriage, chapter 7. The problem of meat, 8 through 11. The problem of worship, chapter 11 through 14. The problem of spiritual gifts, chapter 12 through 14. In the problem of resurrection. And we'll talk about each of those consecutively the next few weeks. But for today, what we'll look at is these first nine verses of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And what I want us to notice today is that the way in which he addresses them, given all the problems that are going on in the church at Corinth, is fascinating. So please follow along with me as I read from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. It should be up there on the screen. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the introduction of this letter sounds like a, a typical intro from uh, this time period. We have the the sender identifying himself, Paul and Sosthenes, whom we presume was some type of secretary or administrative assistant to Paul, helping him to 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 write down this letter. We have the senders, or rather the recipient's name, the Corinthians, and all who call on the name of the Lord. And we have our opening greeting here. But what's notable here is given the circumstances of what's going on here, the warmth and the positive tone by which Paul is addressing the Corinthian church. And we'll touch on that in just a little bit. He reminds them, in verse 1, by the fact that he's called by God to be an apostle. And this calling looks back on his conversion. Paul was a, a brilliant man, a Pharisee among Pharisees, who honestly thought he was serving God by persecuting, by prosecuting followers of Jesus. But God saw it fit to knock him off his horse to open his eyes to the truth about Jesus and appointed him to be an apostle. Now, the office of an apostle was a foundational office in the early church. Some some would say that we have apostles today, but if you read through the scriptures, they were handpicked by Jesus and we don't see them being replaced when they die off, except in one particular very unique instance with the with the Judas situation. You don't see any requirements or any way to identify who would be an apostle. They were Jesus' hand-picked messengers. And it's their writings, by the inspiration of the Spirit, that make up our New Testament. And as a church, not just this church, but all churches, we need to be very careful that we don't ignore the writings of the apostles and give our attention only to the parts of the Bible that we like today when, when people speak against Christianity, usually they 're not speaking against the the parables or the sermons of Jesus found in the Gospels, but rather they 're almost always speaking of, of something written by Paul in one of his letters but it 's all god 's word, and even the hard parts, the difficult parts the the parts that challenge us that, that rub against the grain of our culture we need to be especially careful to listen to. And so he reminds the Corinthian Christians of this special calling, and he addresses them, and really all Christians, as the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, given the circumstances, the dysfunction the total incompetence of the Corinthian church, we'd imagine that the Apostle Paul would start with rebuke or with correction or maybe even fighting words. If you're upset with somebody, usually you tear right into them, especially on text messages and email, which I've had my share of in this life. But Paul starts in a very warm and a a kind manner, He refers to them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Now, these terms have to do with their identity, who they actually were, how God regarded them, who they were at their very core. And who we are, what God says about us, how he regards us, this is the most important thing about us. It's more important than our appearances, our financial worth, our usefulness, whatever it might be. These things are constantly in flux, but what God has said about us is eternal. It's timeless. It's unchanging. And so he reminds them. He reminds them of their identity, that they're sanctified in Christ. And he even calls them saints. Now, the, the verb, the word to sanctify, this is a religious word. It comes from the Old Testament, and you see this idea redundant in the, in the, in the Old Testament. It has the idea of, of calling something or someone and cleansing that something or someone in order to serve God. So, for example, the Hebrew priests were sanctified. They were set apart and cleansed in order to serve God. The, the biblical nation of Israel was was sanctified and it was set apart to serve God. And so likewise, as believers, the Corinthians were set apart, they were sanctified in order to serve God. The word saint doesn't mean what we normally ascribe the term to mean, a a super-Christian who dies and who is later memorialized. The word saint in the truest biblical sense just means sacred ones or holy ones. It has to do with, with being made righteous or made pure. And so those who are sanctified, those who are set apart, those who are cleansed by God, who are chosen to serve God are saints. And so what we see here, in a nutshell, the Corinthian Christians to whom Paul is Writing, they've been chosen by God, they've been cleansed, and they've been made to serve God for His glory through Christ. They were saints. This was their true identity, who God regarded them as, what God called them, how God viewed them. They had once lived lives caught up in religiosity and immorality. But now in Christ, they were cleansed from their sin. They were set apart for God's use. They weren't perfect. They they were messy, no doubt. Daily practical life. But at their core, they were God's. And so for those of us who call upon the name of the Lord, those of us who would say that we're Christian, we too are sanctified. We too are are saints. We've been cleansed. We've been washed. We've been justified. We've been set apart for God's glory. This is our true identity, who we are at the core. This is how God regards us. This is what God says of us, even despite our sin. Our lives are hidden in Christ in a very special and mysterious way so that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ, We're loved, we're forgiven, we're accepted, we're welcomed in Jesus. This is a lot like the example of money I thought of in thinking through this. The, the government prints money and they say this bill is worth this much and this coin is worth this much and we hope that they're, they're not lying too much. What the Fed says, this dollar is worth, this dollar is worth. What the Fed says, this coin is worth, this coin is worth. No matter how tattered or worn out that bill gets. And in the same way, what God has said of us in Christ is true. No matter how tattered or worn out or broken we might get by this life, if we're in Christ today, we're righteous, we're holy, we're We're cleansed and we're set apart. We're in his family forever. And to these set apart ones, Paul prays in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while much of this letter and this series will be talking about some of the issues addressed to this church, Paul's heart for them is clearly displayed here in verse 3. Grace and peace is what he desires for them to have, and as you read this letter, and as they read this letter, he would hope that grace and peace was what they experienced, and you'll you'll notice that he's not just correcting them for his own sake to win a fight or to win an argument or to be priority. He's not just correcting what's going on in the church, rebuking what's going on in the church in order to be some some type of moral hero, but rather he's correcting them so that they would have a deeper understanding of grace and peace. And likewise, when we read the word, when we hear the word and it convicts us and it challenges us to change, it's not so that God can feel better about himself or that or that God delights in our conviction alone, but it's so that we would understand his grace more deeply and have more of his peace in these hectic lives. And this grace and peace comes from God, and it comes from his word to us, and we all need it. The, the Christian life starts with grace. It's sustained by grace. It ends with grace, and God offers us peace Peace in Jesus. Peace that despite crazy lives, despite hard times, he promises to be with us, to never leave us, to never forsake us. And as we go through this book as a church, and the next book after that, and the next book after that, and the next book after that, I hope that we would keep getting grace and peace as we read, as we teach, as we process God's word. Because the, the Bible preached and taught isn't supposed to amount to just some historical data or a memorable story that you take home with you. That's good. That can help. But what, what the Bible preached and taught is supposed to do is, is bring grace and peace to us. It's supposed to bring you to the God of grace and peace. Every week, we hear the gospel. We, we hear the grace of our God, the mercy of our God through His Word. And that's why it's so important to be in places where the Bible is truly taught, where you get a clear, authentic teaching of what this book actually says. Whether that's a a church service, whether that's a one-on-one, whether that's a small group, it's important because God has given us His Word and He's given us Himself in his word, he, he desires that we would know him and understand him and apprehend him. The very next verse, he's, he's thankful for the church. He Again, he reminds them of God's grace in their lives. He says, I give thanks to my God, verse 4, always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And this grace had worked itself into their hearts. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in knowledge. And this grace and its its transforming effects, it validated, it confirmed the, the message of the gospel. Notice Paul says that this grace enriched them in speech and in knowledge. So they weren't lacking in any gift, verse 7. These references to to knowledge and to speech get at the idea of spiritual gifts. And we as Christians believe that when someone trusts in Christ, not only are their sins forgiven and they're brought into the family of God, but they also receive spiritual gifts. And these gifts show up in things like speech and in knowledge and things like service and so on and so on. And these gifts help build up the church. And these gifts help the gospel to go forward, for the, the gospel to be believed, for the church to have integrity and to be a witness in the world. Apparently, there was great abuse and confusion about the spiritual gifts, especially this concept of the, the gift of tongues, the, the idea or the, the, the concept of the Holy Spirit and the, the idea of alleged private knowledge that was available only to some these ideas had split the church there in corinth and it was dividing the church and still today if you're up to date with your christian theology and your your christian ecclesiology you know that these issues are what's dividing churches across our nation and the world still today particularly the gifts the speaking gifts, the, the ecstatic gifts, the, the gift of tongues, the the, the, the the role and the identity of the Holy Spirit, uh, private revelation, things like this, not the book of Revelation, but private messages from God. Is that possible? So these types of things still today are how we draw denominational lines. And I won't say any more on spiritual gifts other than the fact that I hope to talk with you in a few weeks about that. I think I'm scheduled to talk on that Week about spiritual gifts. So I look forward to that, but we'll table that for now. Needless to say, Paul, he's telling them that in their salvation, they've been enriched in every way so that they're not lacking in any gift. And and the point here is that in our salvation, that the normal biblical gifts that, that follow our salvation, we don't need to believe that we're lacking in anything. In our salvation and in the gifts that accompany that salvation, we lack nothing. We've been enriched in every way. And so, as a church, as individual Christians, we don't need to seek mystical experiences. We don't need to to seek special, elite knowledge that's available only to some. We're complete in Christ. In Him, we have everything, we lack nothing. Every spiritual blessing is ours in him. And for the Corinthians, their their salvation and the effects of that salvation, it confirmed, the Bible says, it validated the message of the gospel, especially right there in the city of Corinth. And now this is very important, and this is a great reminder that when the world sees christians living out their faith in christ it confirms our message when they see us living out our faith in jesus it confirms the message of the gospel that the truth about jesus And the primary way we live out our faith is by loving one another that's what jesus says he says, the world will know you are my disciples when you love one another. he tells us in John 17, in that great priestly prayer, that the world will know that the Father has sent the Son when they see the unity of the church. They see a united church. They'll know that God has sent the Son. It'll validate, it will confirm the testimony about Jesus to the world. And this is the great power of the church. This is the great power privilege of the church. Exceptional character in an individual doesn't necessarily prove or validate the message of Christianity, the gospel, Uh, atheism, Hinduism, Islam. Any religion, philosophy can produce exceptional people, moral heroes, And sometimes we look at those heroes and it's all too easy to conclude that they've set their own standards that are too high for any of us to attain. And we quickly are defeated. But what the Christian church can do that no other community can do, what the gospel can produce in the church that no other religious philosophy or religion can produce, is a group of people who love one another who've been so moved by the fact that Christ died for his enemies that they're able to love one another without reservation. They had been enriched in him in every way. They weren't lacking in any gift. And the text tells us they were waiting patiently for the coming of Jesus. This was their hope, that he would be true to his promise to return, to make all things new, to restore all things, this Jesus had saved them. This Jesus would sustain them guiltless until glory. And this is our hope as a church, as the church, we wait patiently and hopefully for the return of Jesus, for him to be true to his promise, to come back to make all things new. And we hope That as we live in good times, as we live in bad times, as we live in difficult times, that Jesus will sustain us, that he'll give us the grace we need to get through and one day to present us guiltless, without sin, before the Father. And this is because God is faithful, verse 8, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For those of us who are Christians, God has begun a good work in our heart, and God will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. God begins the work, he continues the work, and he'll complete the work. For the Corinthians, they needed to be reminded that despite all the problems that had emerged in their church, that God had each of them in his hand and that one day he would make all things right. They needed to be reminded that God had already given them his own son and only wanted what was best for them, even if that would hurt temporarily. God loved them. God brought them into his family and saved them and wanted only what was truly best for them. Sometimes when students turn in assignments before the semester ends, they receive a, an incomplete. Uh, perhaps you've had some incompletes. Uh, not me. I'm the perfect student. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but maybe maybe even uh, incomplete projects around the house. Uh, some of you have started projects around your house and, and you've never finished those those projects, But the good news this morning is God never receives an incomplete. God always finishes what he starts. And the psalmist says, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Is there any better news than this? That God will finish what he started? It's a sure thing. We may not be sure of many things in this life, but you can be sure of this, that if you're a Christian, God will finish what he started. He's faithful. We can be sure of it because he started this work in our lives. He's told us in his word. Let me close with this. One writer reflects on God's goodness in keeping us, and he says this, As I reflect on my 50-plus years in Christ, it is indeed God who has kept me. It is not my grip on God that has made the difference, but his grip on me. I am not confident in my goodness. I am not confident in my character. I am not confident in my history. I am not confident in my reverend persona. I am not confident in my perseverance, but I am confident in God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is wonderful news this morning. Despite the messiness there in the church at Corinth, Paul reminds them of who God called them to be. He reminds them of the fact that God would be faithful to bring them back. And likewise, those of us, no matter where we are this morning, no matter how much we've struggled, no matter how tattered we are, that how worn out we are, we should take heart that if God is for us, who can be against us? He is faithful, and I pray that as we study this book together, we'd be blessed as a church, that we would grow in the grace and the mercy and the knowledge of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for this word. We give you thanks for this church. We give you thanks for how you've loved us, how you've set us apart for you, how you've called us saints. Lord, we give you thanks that you've washed us, you've made us new. We thank you that you're faithful. Lord, we give you today, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll will move to a time of giving. For those of you who are our guests, feel no obligation to give, but for those of you who are normal attenders or members, we encourage you to continue giving with glad and generous hearts as we worship God together this morning.